Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is sponsored by the Human Resources Department at Innovative Online Industries. We're the world's number one employer of elite gamers seeking a real adventure. And welcome back to The Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions, speculates about the answers, and never comes to any real conclusions. <laughs> With your host, Ben Siders, that's me, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. It's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGPod. We should probably say, I keep saying we're certified geeks, but there's no actual certification <laughs> body involved. And that's the thing. There is actually certification bodies. We're going to talk, I think, a little bit about uh, not so much certification bodies, but voluntary yeah. bodies. Well, certification, I mean, we're going to already get sidetracked three seconds into the podcast. <laughs> yeah, but why is that not normal? Yeah, this is just <laughs> what we do. Uh, yeah, but certification marks like are, are part of trademark law, yep. like, like better homes and gardens and stuff like that. There's all these certification marks, but it's a uh, I'm kind of an esoteric area. I don't see a you lot of that. You don't see a lot of them. Certification marks basically is you having up with a trademark which you don't use. So it's always used by a third party, and it's used by a third party in accordance with certain qualifications. Yep. And those qualifications have to be recorded at the trademark office. And if somebody meets those requirements, they can use your mark. Yep. So it's usually – you'll see it a lot of marks where things say something certified. That's a real common one. Amusingly enough, a lot of times like things that say certified in the mark are not actually certification marks. They're actually private trademarks. Yep. Yep. Um, so it's one of those where just because you see something says, you know, X certified does not mean it actually is a certification marker. It's met certain qualifications. It may just be something that they're saying. Well, there's a lot of things that have certifications to them, like professional certifications and whatnot. I'm trying to think of a good ex- – like, like realtor? Does realtor oh, – because that's a trademark. I don't know if that's a certification I mark. That, I don't know if there's a certification. I think there are for certain uh, – one of the realtor groups I think does have a certification, but I don't think it's just realtor. I think it's something else. That could be a whole that. separate episode just on that. Well, today is part two of our <laughs> – discussion of video games. Last time we talked about, uh, well, we talked about video games. We did some updates on some cases. We talked about the Mario Kart. Um, oh, shoot, what was it? The the, the, Japanese, the Japanese company yeah, was doing real-life Mario Kart yep, and then the costumes. So today we're gonna, we've got some more video game topics to talk about. We do have one sort of a case update. Uh, it's this morning before we sat down to record. I just checked on the uh, the Fortnite dance cases to see what was going on. They were just filed in December, so we really yep. didn't expect much. And it's it's what you'd expect. The case was served. Council's entering appearances. They've asked for an extension of time to answer, which I take to mean that they're trying to get this settled, negotiated, and gotten rid of. Yep. Um, but in the course— <laughs> Or they just don't want to prepare the papers yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They're, they're busy. Everybody's still coming back from vacations and whatnot. Uh, but I looked at the um, the, the pleadings in the uh, the Alfonso Ribeiro case, and it, it's interesting if you ever look at the pleadings of a legal case, uh, particularly one that's going to be high profile like these. You can kind of see the litigation strategy kind of laid out in advance. So I only looked at a couple paragraphs of this, but a, a couple of things jumped out at me. As you know, I'm granted we're lawyers, so we're kind of trained to, to see these things, yeah. but. You can see where the story is going with the jury already, right? So first they describe – and by they, I mean uh, the plaintiff's lawyers, the people who are suing Fortnite. They describe Fortnite as, quote – as a, quote, smash hit violent video game. Yep. I think the key with that is there's no doubt it's a smash hit. You can, yeah. <laughs> no, no, yeah. no, no, no. Now, obviously, it is a technically, you know, first-person shooter, third-person shooter video game. Yeah, so there's game. a violence element to it. But, but what, what, so, Kirk, let me ask you. What relevance does the violence in the video game have to whether they're stealing 
the copyrights to these dance moves or not. Absolutely none. Absolutely none. So yeah. why is it in there? And and yet the reason it's in there is because they how they want to characterize the video game. And it's yeah. I think it's worthwhile to just sort of point this oh, out. No, you know? I'd do the same thing if I was a lawyer. Yeah. You know, for for this, these people, I'd be like, oh, it's a violent game, and it's because because you're going to have it's almost a trademark type argument that they're tarnishing his likeness, yes. tarnishing his um his reputation by associating his dance with with Fortnite. Yeah, and, and I think that that's you know a lot of what you're seeing with this is they want to characterize this as something that he does not necessarily want to be associated with, particularly potentially for the Carlton, because of the fact yep. that the Carlton is kind of a silly thing. You know, it's based upon a comedy show. You know, it's something that's not associated with violence in any yep. way, shape, or form. Although I'm sure if they if they told him, okay, fine, we'll take it out. Um, or we can leave it in, we can pay you. Which one would you prefer? <laughs> I think we all know the answer all, to that all one. All of a sudden, our interest level <laughs> in, in not being tarnished may, may, may change. Yep. Um, this is another line. They accuse Epic of, quote, faking endorsements by celebrities, end quote. Yep. That one, I think, is a little bit of a stretch to say that the, I, mean, I don't think anybody who, I mean, I, maybe I'm painting too broadly here, but I can't imagine anybody who knows who Alfonso, I mean, because it's Fortnite, right? It's a game played by 14-year-olds yeah. for the most part. None of them know who Carlton is. <laughs> Except for maybe the, the guy in the gifts, you know, you see sometimes on Twitter. Are any of them sitting here thinking, oh, Alfonso Ribeiro clearly endorses Fortnite because this dance is yeah. in here? Again, it's a trademark term. I mean, they're kind of getting at this idea of, you know, this is some tarnishment argument. This is some, you know, trademark type argument. But again, what we're talking about here primarily is copyright. You know, that yeah. seems to be the primary assertion. But there are California, yeah, California publicity yeah. claims in there, um, too. But yeah, I think the, the idea behind this is basically this is a lot of the assertions of trademark claims. And, you know, you can see this stuff building in here. And again, mm-hmm. you got to look at it and say, wait, does anybody actually believe this? Also, well, that's what's going to go to a jury is, does anybody right. actually believe that? But then you have to ask, like, as as the the norms of behavior on the internet continue to emerge in the direction of the unchecked wild, wild west where anybody can do anything. <laughs> the meme. Yeah the, yeah, the meme culture, the meme era. Does that cut against some of this? That the mere fact that somebody's, you know, a dance move or, or you know, a, a, a four-frame gif is included, I think people at this point, I don't even know if Twitter has the right to all the, the memes and gifts that they use. I'm certain they don't, to be quite truthful. Yeah, I'd, I'd, guess, I'd guess not, but I wouldn't be surprised if they had some blanket license from NBC, you know, for all the office gifts you see. There's a Michael Scott, you know, God, no, one that you see all the time. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know whether they have those or not, but, you know, you and I ask those questions. Most people don't. So I was just – so uh, random aside, I was watching uh, an Iowa basketball game the other day. It was Iowa versus – You watching Northern. Iowa sports yeah. never. Actually, so let me back up. I got back from an event with my son, and I just asked Siri what the score of the game was. And Iowa was losing by like 14 points. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to watch that one because it was almost over. Uh, and then I went back and checked later, and they were down by like three. So I turned the game on, watched the end. Iowa hit uh, a three-pointer to win the game at the end, and everybody went crazy, and it was super fun. And my wife screamed and, and woke up our kids. And <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but then um, you know, the university puts out this little – there's this new meme that's going around where when someone wins like a big game like that um, – they play the end of the game, and then right as the ball goes in the basket, oh, then they, and they play it, My Heart Will Go On in the background <laughs> by Celine Dion. Actually, it's by James Horner, performed by Celine Dion. And then right when the ball goes in the basket, the big crescendo, you know, uh, yep. starts up. And it's, it's pretty funny. Um, it's, it's both dramatic and funny. Uh, but well, because it, it involves a sinking ship normally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, I, I couldn't help but think, like, do, do they have sink rights to use that from Columbia? I, I, <laughs> or really, do they need them? Is that a fair use, you know? It's yep. not really transformative, but, I, you know, 
the the jump from uh, late '90s romantic tragedy movie to uh, winning basketball shot seems like enough of a leap. Maybe it is. It's what well, I think is so interesting about it, and it's it, I think it's just worth pointing out. This is one of those things when you're an IP lawyer, like you watch stuff like this and you see these things, yeah, and you go, it "Wait, it ruins everything for you. You can't just sit down and enjoy anything anymore." Yeah, you know, you're you're constantly <laughs> sort of bumping into these questions of like, "Can this person do this?" Yeah. Or you know, do they have sync rights for what they just did? And like, it'd be easier if it was terrestrial radio. You just need. Yeah. You just get a mechanical license, and you're, oh, what do you need that? You just get, <laughs> you just broadcast it and pay the royalties to whoever, you know? Yeah. Uh, but since it's online, all the rules are different. Yeah, and it's, it, it is one of the things we've talked about in the show, and I think it's worth reiterating again, is one of the things you really bump into in this is there are all sorts of questions, and we love to sort of point out those questions. As we say in our intro, you know, we, we love to sort of come up with, you know, interesting questions, speculate wildly about the answers, and yeah. never come to any conclusion. We're not just being cheeky, though. It's because there are no answers yeah. to a lot of these new questions involving and, social media. And that's exactly the point, is that we're getting to these things that say, hey, there's a lot of interesting legal questions out there. And we've even commented about it in conjunction with the Fortnite dance cases. Mm-hmm. I think if you got online and you searched out all the people who are blogging and talking about the Fortnite dance cases— 90% of them say, these are easy cases. And the answer is, those 90% are all wrong. These are easy not cases easy cases. If the dances are copyrightable, then it's clearly an infringement. I mean, I don't know what the yeah. defense would be that it's not. I guess fair use, you'd argue, but... I don't know. That's, I, don't, I, don't, I don't buy that. Yeah, um, but the other side of it, a lot of them come in and say, oh, they're clearly not copyrightable. They're too short. There's the simple move, stuff yeah. like that. And the I, answer is we don't know the answer yeah, to this I don't question. Think it's that simple. I, I'm not sure that, you know, the floss is what dance copyright was really intended to capture. But if you've, if you've done any legal reading at all, and we'll get into some of that later on when we talk about patents, what you meant to do with the law is, is often very different from, <laughs> from what it actually does. Yeah, and that's a lot of what we try to focus in on this show. And hopefully you guys like this as listeners, and we'd love to get feedback, you know, assuming you do or don't, um, is to really sort of point out the fact that, quite frankly, the world is complicated when it comes to intellectual property, and particularly a lot of geek culture, because it involves a lot of internet, it involves a lot of computers, it involves a lot of sort of imagination, for lack of a better Mm -hmm. term, um, involves a lot of very intriguing legal issues that 99.9% of the time in respects, nobody cares about, but they're still there. And then there's, you have the 0.1% of the time when somebody does care, and suddenly you have the, well, what does this mean for everything else that associates yeah. with this? Like the comment we just made about memes. You know, when we start talking about things like Fortnite dances, that potentially has impact on what it means to generate memes on Twitter mm-hmm. or on Facebook or any of the sort of social media platforms. Shouldn't we be worried about that? You know, and this is, you know, in law school, they always talk about slippery slopes and this concept of, hey, if you have a case go one way, it creates a slippery slope to say all these other things could happen Mm -hmm. um, that we don't necessarily want to have happen. But in law school, one of the big things you get into a lot of times is this discussion of hypotheticals that are intriguing. And it's one of the reasons I – mean, when you're in law school and people comment about it, like people watch Law & Order in law school. It's mm. one of the few like legal dramas people in law school can stand to watch. Because well, it's a procedural drama. Yeah. It's a procedural drama. But it's also like they really do their research. Like mm-hmm. the procedure in this is very, very good. And what they tend to do is they tend to take the case that's got the legal inter- the le- interesting legal issue and then make that forefront by changing the facts just slightly mm-hmm. so it has to be. You know, they'll rip from the headlines, you yep. know, thing that they, they love to do. But what's sort of great about it, I think it, part of the reason Law & Order has been so popular is because it does focus on these 
hey, potentially there is an extremely interesting legal question here, political question here, something along those lines that we can explore because we can explore it in a fictional medium and that's really interesting. From that respect, we look at a lot of these questions, quite frankly, and I think it's a lot of the, the ground for this podcast. This is what science fiction does. Mm-hmm. This is what science fiction do- has done since essentially science fiction has existed is try to look at these things and say, what do we do with these difficult questions when we take something and we tweak it just slightly so that it's not the easy answer anymore? All of a sudden, the answer becomes hard. And again, I think that's part of the impetus for this, you know, particular or impetus for this particular podcast is we were looking at it and saying these questions are interesting. These questions are kind of fun. And then we we'll like an answer either. This, yeah. this case, I mean, I'll just say right now, I think these cases are all going to settle. Yeah, I'd be yeah, shocked if these went to trial. Too. There's no, I mean, nobody's going to let that happen. Um, and and what's you know what th- this is maybe I'm mean, really sidetracked now, but I think it's an interesting topic. Is this is sort of an inherent peril of of legislative efforts to deal with problems, which is that we have to we have to make rules. You know, we've since since the age of Hammurabi, we've believed that you should write <laughs> the rules down. But the problem with that Hammurabi is, is the first written law. For like yeah, if you guys yeah, who don't the, know Hammurabi's code. Go, Google it. Um, you know, so this is something we've been doing for thousands of years. We, we all agree it's a good idea that the law should be written down so everybody knows what they are. But does it do any good? Do we even know what they are? You know, because especially in a common law system like the United States, you know, there's what the rule says, but ask any lawyer, you know, well, well but what if? Well, it depends, and there's a million <laughs> factors that go into it. And it's, it's particularly vexing in a situation like this where – you know, we have we have the copyright as an institution, yeah. and, and and Kirk, I know you know the answer to this question. Why do we have copyright in the first place? Because <laughs> of the printing because press. Because of the printing press. Okay, it's all Gutenberg's fault. <laughs> um, you know, and he's been dead for centuries. But so we have this institution that grew out of the way that the printing press changed how books were published in in you know in Renaissance Europe, and now we're using the same basic concept to cover whether or not you can digitally recreate a 1980s sitcom dance move in a video game in 2019. Yep. Just on its surface, it's an absurd inquiry. Yeah. But here we are, you know? Um, and I, I think, you know, and, and part of the problem is, but what else are we going to use? Yeah. Right? What, what else is there? It, it, it seems like copyright makes sense for expressive things, even though we only have this because at some point we decided in, you know, in late te- 17th century England, we decided that the the Printers Guild should not control the publishing of things because then the Crown could censor everything. Let's let authors control the printing of things. And that seemed like a good idea. Yeah. And, and, and it's just – it's been here ever since, right? Yeah, and that's – you know, we're, we're waxing philosophical a bit, but I think it's, it's a worthwhile thing for conjunction with this is – when we're talking about the stuff associated with copyright law, you really do have to keep in mind that these are concepts that are thousands of years old. They're ancient, yeah. You know, um, you know, the idea of having, you know, ownership in something which you create. You know, they've been codified for hundreds of years. Well, we were also um, you and I were talking the other day. The whole the whole uh, conceit behind copyright as an institution is that expressive works are uh, inexorably connected to some sort of physical media. Yeah. Well, we broke that, you know, 20 years ago. Yes. And, and uh, our, our colleague Mike Armstrong at the office sent us a, uh, a video on YouTube called We Have Broken Copyright. It was all about how uh, copyright royalties are handled on YouTube, which is all done extra legally. Like none of it involves the law. It's just all done by contract and, and corporate fiat. Yeah, um, and by AI. And, and by AI to some extent. Mind as well, yeah. Because there's too much of it going on. Nobody wants to 
keep track of it. So you register your copyrights, and, and there's a royalty system. But but this is this is not new. This is always how copyright has operated. We did the same thing with the music industry. Uh, if if you look at the Copyright Act, so much of it just reflects prevailing industry practices in the music industry yeah. that grew up in the 20th century to the point where. We have a definition of what a you know what a, what a collective rights licensing organization is, and the definition is what the fun, ASCAP, the, the BMI, ASCAP, and CSAC. CSAC. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's ASCAP and BMI. I think when they actually yeah. did it originally, because CSAC came in later. But the um, but yeah, it's again. I think the the thing we have with this, and sort of a lot of what we like to focus in in conjunction with these, and part of the reason we're actually harping on this Fortnite case. One, this Fortnite case, I think, is a very good example because we don't know the outcome of this yet, and it's fun. You know, and it's it's a fun case, but it's also something that you know we do have. An, a couple issues here with no outcome that's yet been decided. You know, we can go back and look at a case and say, hey, this is an interesting case from 50 years ago, but, you know, we know what the outcome of it is. Yeah. With this case, we don't know what the outcome of it is yet. And those you know, cases- you guys are listening to this episode way back in our back catalog, <laughs> you know, after the case has been decided, but... It's, yeah, you're it's, laughing at us. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing at us and thinking this is hilarious, but it's one of those where the... It's an interesting thing. It's got a lot of interesting legal issues. But the other thing we've got to really keep in mind is there's a decent chance this will not have a resolution. And that's, I think, part of the thing that also gets very, very interesting when you start talking about these questions in the law is we know there is something here which needs a resolution, which may not have one. And this this is why lawyers get so obsessed about following cases like this is if this does happen to go to a judgment, it will be appealed, whoever loses. It'll go to the Ninth Circuit, and we'll get some kind of ruling from the Ninth Circuit on, on what this means. And if that happens, that will establish the law of dance in the United States for the foreseeable future. Because how long will it be until there's the next big dance litigation? You yeah. know, it's going to be a long time. There aren't that many of these. Yeah, though it may be faster because of things like memes, yeah. because of stuff like that and happening. And there may be even less because with this ruling, we'll have a better idea of how these things work. And this reminds me of the – I think we talked about this case, the Madonna uh, case involving uh, her song Vogue that yep. uh, from the 90s where you know her producer just used a horn sample that was less than a quarter of a second long. Uh, that the same producer had recorded with a prior act from the 60s or 70s. And uh, the original artist sued over the use of their performance, and it went all the way to the Ninth Circuit. It went to trial. It went to the Court of Appeals, and uh, the uh, the Court of Appeals said, no, it's a fair use, affirmed the, 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 tr- the trial conclusion. So a, less than a quarter of a second of just horns playing a chord yeah. uh, went to the Ninth Circuit, and probably millions of dollars were spent in, in legal fees and expert fees. But now we've got some clarity. If it's 0.24 seconds or less, it's probably fair use, you know? <laughs> well, even that's debatable. Even because then, had to, had that's to, just one factor out of several. That's one factor in the determination of fair use. But yeah, and that's and that kind of thing. And it's, it's so much of it is, is it's changing culture and things like that. We, you know, again, I wasn't being entirely facetious with the idea that if you're listening to this in back catalog, you know, this is 10 years from now when this is recorded and, you know, you're going back and saying, hey, look at how idiotic these guys were at the time. Yeah, everybody's obsessed about this dance thing that wound up being nothing. Right? Yeah, that like, ended up being know. nothing. Or, you know, we had the court reach clarity on that. And it's everybody now understands. No, that's just the way it was. That's the yeah. world we live in. You know, you well, can't, think can't about do this. Our character copyright episodes. We talked about a couple of competing cases that came down, like in the '40s, '50s, '60s, '70s. We still don't have complete clarity on that area of law. And we've got Mickey Mouse. You know, going to hit the public domain here in five-ish years. Five-ish years, I think. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's going to become more relevant. And even with these cases, the Supreme Court hasn't taken it up and, and told us anything. And they're probably not yeah. going and to. And they probably won't go. Not going yeah. to. So that's, I think that's, a, you know, we've waxed lyrical here for a while. And we'll get a little bit back on subject. But I think the whole point of what we were just trying to say is there's a reason we're talking about this stuff. And we're talking about this stuff because we think it's interesting. We hope you guys do too. But if it's not, also, tell us. Yeah, if not, tell us. But also part of the reason we do it is because these are real questions that probably aren't going to have answers. And so, you know, hopefully you're not listening to this podcast hoping we can tell you everything you yep. need to know about IP law because we're not going to. But hopefully you you start to see the complexity that might be out there. Yeah. And unfortunately, when you see the complexity, it can also lead to the, but then I don't want to have anything to do with it. Okay, yeah, that happens too. Um, but, you know, it's called the chilling effect in law school. But it's one of the <laughs> – <laughs> so literally, I said, like, lawyers recognize the fact that, you know, like, saying a case decision can actually have an effect beyond what it's supposed to do. But that's a lot of what we talk about this and a lot of what we're going into this. And part of the reason we're harping on this case, and I just want to harp on this case because right now this is very interesting uh, well, it, it involves something that's more tangible to people. Like a lot of legal issues, you know, does anybody out there in the world really care about the latest jurisprudence on the timing of holding a Rule 16 conference? You know? Yeah. <laughs> you don't know what it is. You don't care. And if you knew, you'd be asleep in minutes. So, no, you, you don't care. But unless this, you're a litigator. Yeah, unless you're a litigator. Uh, but but this, this is something you can see, something, you know, you may have played Fortnite. You watched Fresh Prince. These are, are things that, and you know, and the podcast is a lawyer's guide to the galaxy. It's about geek culture. It's about, um, you know, and which, which to some extent is, is you know, when we grew up, it was it was a subculture. Now it's just a part of <laughs> pop culture. Yeah. Um, but these these are things that are more tangible, more accessible, more discernible, and and these are the questions that you and I get. You know, when we go to to parties and stuff, or to, to events, and people come up and ask us legal questions, this is the kind of stuff they want to know. I'm making a game. Can I do this? Or I'm writing a book. Can I do yeah. this? I saw someone post this on Facebook. Is that legal? And unfortunately, we give them the same answer you guys get here. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and even I mean, we get a lot of people who come up to us also and go, "Have you heard about these Fortnite suits? Aren't those stupid?" And it's well, uh, no, no. It's <laughs> as dumb as it sounds. Uh, they're not as simple as it sounds. There may be more complex issues here and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think that's that's it's worth going through those things as just what it is. But it's also worth a lot of what we were talking about in conjunction with these pleadings. And the reason we're playing we're been around with these pleadings is the idea of you can see when you read through pleadings a little bit of what the lawyers are thinking. Yeah. And, you know, the, again, we're talking about the fact that we have primarily a copyright suit here, but there's some trademark principles being brought in. Now, copyright and trademark have already been tangled up a little bit previously. You know, there's as been trademark. Discussed. Yeah, as we've discussed. <laughs> So, you know, you see the idea of sort of saying, hey, how do we play this to a jury? Because this is something they understand. There's a good chance that people on the jury will have played Fortnite. Another thing that's important to point out is that part of your job as a plaintiff's lawyer is to make the other side look as bad as possible. And they played that card here. So uh, the third bullet point I've got here on on things I noticed that were notable in, in a copyright infringement pleading uh, the plaintiffs claim that Epic has, quote, consistently sought to exploit African-American talent, end quote. And they go on to list a large number of, of black performing artists whose work has been used in Fortnite. Now, I've never played Fortnite. I don't know if that's true or not. I assume there's at least some basis for it because of Rule 11. You have to have some basis for yep. saying the things that you say. Uh, but that's interesting, right? Because this is more of a social issue that, you know, in a legal sense, is completely irrelevant to copyright. Yeah, completely irrelevant to copyright. Who You know, the, the, the race of the person who generated the copyright material is utterly meaningless in yeah. copyright. Um, you know, it may not have been, you know, 100 years ago, but it is today. And that's 
again, it's one of these things where you sort of look at it and you can see a little bit of the idea of saying— It's part of the advocacy. Yeah, it's you know, advocacy. To represent your client. But it's also the idea of saying this is a bad actor. You know, it's not mm-hmm. just the fact that, hey, they're taking this. They're taking this with bad motives behind yeah. it. You they're know, going after uh, historically disadvantaged groups of people yeah. and, and, and taking their stuff. Who may not be able to afford to bring the suit against them, yeah. you know. And, and that's the reason we only have two of these suits, even though there's hundreds of dances, you know. Those kind of things are— But again, it's, you know— there's a lot of interesting stuff you find. Though I think he's doing okay. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of stuff that you see, you know, in 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 conjunction with pleadings that that really do give you this idea of what people are thinking. And so I guess we can kind of look at this and say we are examining at at this point in time a little bit of the the mechanics of law, which is how these cases are brought, and the idea that when people do bring these kind of cases. There's a lot of stuff asserted, which may be edgy. You know, it's not yeah. going to be flat out wrong. That's you know, no attorney's going to do that. But it may be edgy. You know, as to is this relevant? What does this really mean? Mm-hmm. But a lot of that has to do with the concept of advocacy and and what the attorneys are doing of trying to portray the other side as being awful, and being awful for reasons that are relevant. So you kind of look is, at it and say, is this something the person took because by they did it by accident, or is this something the person took because they're purposely exploiting yeah, it's the part person? Part of some sort of larger larger idea to to misappropriate culture, which another topic we've we've hit on as as taking place in video games. So yeah. um, it's 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 not crazy. It's, it's interesting as a as a strategic matter, though, because the amount of information you have to put into a federal pleading is really small. You don't have to say that much. And I think, you know, uh, lawyers kind of differ on this. Some say, well, this is your first chance to tell your story to the judge, so you want to really frame it carefully. Some just want to do the bare minimum and put nothing in that they don't have to because whatever you say is going to be, you know, used against you. So it's it's a little risky to go after some of these strategies, uh, but it's it's all part of the advocacy, and uh, it's, it's interesting to read. Well, let's move on from that case. Uh, So uh, last time we talked about some other cases, uh, we're going to cover some different issues today. One one that we were specifically asked to talk about is the implication of First Amendment issues in video games. We should probably say at the outset, Kirk, neither you nor I specialize in First Amendment issues. Um, It it occasionally comes up, but in copyright, First Amendment analysis is largely subsumed in fair use. The Um, other thing to keep in mind, I think it's very important, is as much as people do sort of conflate the two together, First Amendment issues and copyright are very different legal subjects. mm -hmm. And it's worth noting that as to what it is. There's sort of an inherent tension there. This question I get a lot too is how can we have a copyright act at all, which is Congress abridging the freedom of speech, while we also have an amendment to the Constitution that says Congress shall pass no law abridging the freedom of speech? Yeah, yeah, we we abridge the freedom of speech regularly. I mean, the the one you always learn about in conjunction with law school is the abridgment, which basically says you can't stand up in a private movie theater and yell fire as freedom of speech because that essentially causes panic and get people killed, and that's a dangerous thing. It's important to point out that the Constitution also grants Congress the power to issue copyrights in the first place. It did that before we had the Amendment. Yes, it says that specifically in the body of it. Um, but yeah, it's, it, there is some ton, some tension between them. But I think the key about it is, in many respects, when you talk about First Amendment issues, you talk about what the government can and can't force people to say or yeah. not say. Copyright's much more of individuals between themselves as to who gets to say it. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't to have say the a issue. particular thing a particular way. Yeah. Too. You, copyright cannot stop you from expressing an idea. Yeah, okay, it's it's well, they can tell you expressing the idea in the same expression. In the exact same way, yeah. Um, but you can't do it. So again, we kind of look at it and say, you know, can you write a story which, you know, is set in the South in post-Civil War era, you know, and not write Gone with the Wind? Yes, you can. You know, that's perfectly acceptable. You can even rewrite Gone with the Wind. We yeah. saw that case. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
Absolutely. Um, and so I think the thing you get into is you have to keep in mind that sort of First Amendment issues in copyright, copyright is a very narrow exception to what you can and can't say. And again, the way I oftentimes put it is it's First Amendment issues are usually what the government can and can't do. Copyright is much more the yep. how we resolve the dispute between two individuals and who gets to say it. You know, it's not that the government is saying you can or can't say it. It's saying that individual one gets to say it and individual two doesn't. Yeah, in that um, particular way. Maybe we should hit that way. real quick. So copyright is really about a particular expression. So as Kirk just said, you know, you, you can write a novel set in, in you know, the antebellum south – and you don't necessarily infringe Gone with the Wind unless you use the same characters, the same story, the same relationships, even in some instances the same words. And and you know, the scope of a copyright is generally pretty narrow. And the way I often explain that to people is your copyright lasts for you know for all practical purposes your entire life plus a century. You yeah. know, um, and uh, it, it costs what to register it? Fifty bucks. Fifty bucks. Yeah, yeah, it's not much. Whereas a patent, if you're lucky, you get one, and maybe it lasts for. 15 years? 15, 17 years, yeah. Somewhere in that range. It's 20 years from when you file it, so it depends on how long it takes you to get the patent. And it costs um, usually tens of thousands of dollars to get one, plus you have to pay maintenance fees that cost more thousands of dollars or you lose it. Uh, and it doesn't last nearly as long because patents cover a, a concept, which we're going to get into later, whereas, whereas uh, copyright just covers a particular expression of a concept. Yep. Yeah, and that's and that's a lot of what we you know we have with it. And I think the, the the key thing we're talking about it when we're getting into First Amendment issues is to recognize that again, First Amendment and copyright are really exceedingly different you know, concepts when it comes to the law. In many respects, it's the same way, and I've commented about this, that copyright and plagiarism have nothing to do with each other. And a lot yeah. of people immediately look at me and go, wait a minute, are, isn't plagiarism an expression of copyright infringement? And the answer is no. Plagiarism is usually what academic institutions say contractually you're obligated to do as a student. Yeah. It has nothing to do with copyright law. Now, it's based upon some elements of copyright concept, mm-hmm. but a lot of things you do it, you know, under the scope of plagiarism, would constitute copyright infringement other than the fact that it's done yeah. for educational purposes and comprises fair use. <laughs> Suddenly you get into these kind of really complicated copyright issues. Yeah. In many respects, what educational institutions do with plagiarism is they say as, as an educational setting, these are things we don't want to have done yeah. because it, it, it's, it damages the educational institution. Plagiarism is more about, about academic integrity. Yeah. Uh, and copyright infringement is just about whether you stole or somebody else's stuff. It's, it's possible to plagiarize without committing copyright infringement. And it's possible to commit possible copyright infringement without committing plagiarism. Yeah, that kind of thing happens all the time. Uh, so one, one uh, particularly interesting thing about the First Amendment as applied to video games is that it wasn't always clear that video games were protected speech in the first place because not everything is protected speech. Yes. Like, we commented about you know the idea that you can't you know, jump in a crowd of movie theater and yell fire. That's yeah. not protected speech. A lot of commercial speech is not. So a lot of, of statements by corporations to sell products is not considered protected speech under the First Amendment. Again, so the example is they can't say things which are patently false, even yeah. though presumably you could do that under the yeah. First Amendment. False advertising laws are constitutional. Yeah, false advertising laws are constitutional because that's com- what they call commercial speech. Yep. And commercial speech is subject to a high standard, basically, than, than individual also speech. also penalties for fraud, fraudulent inducement. You can't yeah. lie to people and trick people for, for commercial yeah. purposes. Even like though, that. again, you look at it and say, can I, you know, can I freely lie to somebody on the First Amendment? Presumably, yes, but you can get yourself in trouble with that. Yeah. <laughs> so a, a good example, if I'm walking down the street and someone comes up to me and says, which way is it to the arch? And I just don't like the cut of his jib, so I point in the wrong direction and say, it's that way. I just lied for the intention of misleading somebody. Do, would an action for fraud lie against me? Probably not. Probably not, yeah. right? For one, they'd never find me. But but in any case, well, what, are, what are their damages other than a little bit of time? Yeah. You know, it's not, nothing's going to happen. Whereas if I put an advertisement out on TV and deliberately mislead people to the wrong place, you know, that's a whole separate 
you know, thing. Yeah. And that's and that's the thing I think you got to keep in mind again is it's you've got a lot of limitations that you know the First Amendment is not absolute and there are places where they did it. And I think it's interesting. It's one of those things when you commented about this and sort of said you know that for a long time it wasn't clear if they were actually constituted protected speech. I'd forgotten that, but that actually was a big deal. Um, it was just a, for a was long it 2005, time. I got the case written down here. Yeah. Brown versus Entertainment Merchants Association. It's a California case that went to the Supreme Court and the court uh, upheld the the um, the lower court decision to find a 2005 California law which regulated the sales of video games to minors without parental supervision held it unconstitutional as an infringement of free speech. Overly broad regulation. Yeah, overly broad. And that's that's the standard that's oftentimes used in conjunction with free speech is yeah. what's called overly broad. Yeah. Um, you can regulate speech, but it has to be the yep. least you know, least restrictive way to accomplish a very important public yep. policy. So an example of like the one that's always sort of thrown out when you take First Amendment law is if you want to have a protest, generally you're required to register the protest with the city that you're going to have it in mm-hmm. so that they can close streets so that they can make sure that everything's sort of provided for. It's a public safety for. thing. It's a public safety thing. Can anybody do that? Yes. Anybody yeah. can apply for it and they have to basically allow anybody who wishes to do a protest and go through those procedures to do that. But there's a recognition that that's restrictive, but it's the least restrictive yep. way to do it because if you just simply allowed protests, you could end up with essentially being dangerous to the protesters yep. because you have traffic. You know, you think about the idea of you know people going out and saying, I'm just going to close the highway by standing in it. There's a decent chance you're going to get hit. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's and that's the thing is it's like that could be dangerous. Whereas the the goal we have with it is to say yes, we want to allow you to have this thing, but we don't want half your protesters to get killed trying yep. to do it. Um, we have a know. lot of public sphere regulation. Like if you go to the library, I mean, you can be a private religious organization that that you know where the government can't pick one over the other, but you can still rent a private library room and you can keep other people out of it, right? Yeah. And you also can't you know there's there's public indecency laws and things like that. You can't do certain things in public view because there's a legitimate state interest in having certain things not in the view yep. of, say, children. And I think that that's the thing is a lot of people, when they look at First Amendment, they look at First Amendment as being the sort of absolute. It's and not. the answer to it is it's not. It's not even close. Um, and so when we're talking about these kind of issues, we, we need to keep in mind that, you know, anybody who's sort of looking out there and going, but the First Amendment, but the First Amendment would say you could do this. The issue to it is, is the First Amendment is not absolute. There's a lot of things that are not allowed well, even with the First Amendment People, place. this is one of the most poorly, I mean, I usually say fair use and copyright is poorly misunderstood, but the number of people I see online who, who fundamentally do not understand what the First Amendment is, you know, <laughs> you'll see. Um, well, they don't fundamentally understand what anything of the amendments actually means. <laughs> well, be not, that way. not unique to the First Amendment. Uh, no, but you'll you'll see, you know, s- somebody, some celebrity says something that's that's offensive or stupid, and then everybody says, let's boycott that person. And you always have the one guy on your Facebook page that says, what about the First Amendment? Well, co- Congress didn't do anything. Yeah. We're all allowed to make commercial choices based on what we approve or disapprove of. There's no the same First as that celebrity was allowed to say what they did. Yeah. The First Amendment is the freedom to say your mind. It's not the freedom to be insulated from the consequences yeah. of that. The, I mean, I think the thing about it is, is, you know, if you go back and it's anybody who's ever taken like a ghost tour in uh, England or Scotland, you know, there was a time in history where if the celebrity would have said that, they would have been arrested and murdered. Yeah. You know, I mean, executed for what they said. Um, you know, that kind of thing. Is, that, that's what the First Amendment says, is that the state is not allowed to grab that celebrity yeah. and throw them in prison for the rest of their lives because yeah. they said something that the current president doesn't like. You know, it's it's those kind of things where you get into it. So, yes, they're entitled to say it, and the people are entitled to respond to it however they want to. Neither one of those is technically a First Amendment issue. The First Amendment would arise if the government came in and said, no, you can't do that, yeah. or we're going to arrest you for doing that, or we're going to execute you for doing that. That's what we were in some sense trying to get around. And again, 
we, we're picking on the First Amendment right now just because First Amendment is one of the most sort of IP-related, you know, things about it. But it's a problem you bump into in conjunction with huge amounts of the constitutional law. And I mean, anybody who goes to law school, you're required to take constitutional law generally. Yep. Um, certain law schools don't require it, but it's— for Usually you take like a federalism class. class, and then there's a couple more classes. There's a crim pro class on yep. the Fourth and Fifth Amendment, and then there's a First Amendment class, and you'll see how the one they usually do. Fourteenth? Yeah. Yeah, Fourteenth. Yeah. And, and so stuff like that. But yeah, it's one of those things where it's, you know, you're— you discover that there's huge amounts of law that basically says the Constitution is a simple document, and it's very yeah. true. It's a very short document. It's a very simple document as the basis of law for the country. There's been a lot of interpretation to it over the years. There's a lot of argument that some of that interpretation is right, some of that interpretration is wrong. Well, people That's also don't understand the, the Constitution itself is a compromise struck amongst a bunch of people who couldn't agree on anything. Yeah. <laughs> and so a lot of it says— we, we agree on this much, and then we'll form a Congress and let them decide later. Yeah, and, and the other thing with it is, and it's, I, I always love the comment, it's not something, I, something I've only heard fairly recently, was there's a, there was a lot of sort of international sympathy when the United States sort of was formed in the end of the Revolutionary War. There was a lot of the, United, a lot of the world looking at it and going, this will never work. Yeah. France especially was like, you know what? We don't like England either, so we'll, we'll, we'll back you. We'll, we'll finance this. Yeah. And, and there's an argument that the U.S. Revolution bankrupted the French crown. But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think they kind of looked at it and said, yeah, that, that, that's cute. Yeah. And then, you know, then the Bastille. And they're like, oh, crap. Yeah, and it's, there was a lot of argument that it would never work. And yet we have made it work. And part of the reason that we, we make it work is because we deal with this idea that we have this supreme law that's out there. But at the same time, that supreme law has not truly been – identical since the beginning. We have obviously no. adjusted our interpretations of it. We have adjusted the Constitution itself by adding additional amendments, stuff like that. But that's one of the things to just sort of keep in mind. And again, I think what we're really kind of harping on with this First Amendment is when you talk about First Amendment issues and these things, the First Amendment is not absolute. And that's what we really need to sort of point out and to start yeah. off with. It's not absolute. It wasn't absolute when it came to these things. But on, so on that now point, let's get into the specifics yeah. of, of where why, it goes. Why would video games not be protected speech? What's the argument that it's not? I mean, so let's let's pull it apart what it is. You've got graphics and images. Yep. All, all, all of which, you know, are obviously is on some level protected speech. Um, sound should be, sound recordings. I mean, why, why would there be no free speech um, interest in a video game. I what think some of the different? question was the fact that essentially the the player writes the storyline. Yeah, we've got into that before, uh, right? Yep. That the that the player's choices and interactions with the um, with the work uh, dictate what the experience is and what the and, work is as well. Yeah, and, and what the ultimate resulting work is. The player is a participatory element in it. Um, you know, sort of in the way like a sporting event. You know, it's it's um, it's put on by a sports league, but the players and their choices really decide what the ultimate end product's going to be. Yep. But with a video game, you know, the rules are written and and the structure's all there, and then a person you know, generally consumes it privately. And then generates, in some sense, a, a new unrecorded work. It's not fixed in any medium, so it's not separately copyrighted unless you record it, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's it's not intuitive that that would necessarily yeah. be protected speech, or even if that is, that the game itself that makes that possible would be protected yeah. speech. The other thing with it is, quite frankly, is it's commercial speech. That yeah. There's a lot of argument that this is a commercial product. Video games are a commercial product. The product is purchased. As such, it's no more speech than you know the the advertising on the outside of a scrub you know scrub brush. Yep. That you know it can't be misleading, it can't be false. So it's it, commercial speech again is entitled to much less First Amendment protection because of all the concerns of fraud, because of things like that. We look at what is a video game. You are physically selling the video game. You are mm-hmm. selling that experience as to what it is. Arguably, this is commercial speech. You know, you can't have stuff in it which you can say no, it's protected. I can put political opinions in my video game hidden as Easter eggs because I want to. Well. It's it's commercial speech. Should you be entitled to do that? Maybe not. 
especially if people aren't expecting it or whatever it might well, be. Well, that part of it might be, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the entire game would be protected. And yeah. this this particular case is interesting because it was a law regulating the sales of video games to minors. Um, I don't recall if it was on grounds of of like uh, adult sexual content or violence. It was violence, content. actually. It was probably the issue, violence. Yeah. Uh, which, but, but that should give rise to an immediate response question. How is it that movie theaters can keep people out of rated R movies? Well, and that's uh, – the, the key thing about it is, is it's voluntary compliance. Exactly. It's a different thing. Yeah, and actually the, the, the modern video game ratings, I believe, are the same way. You know, where yeah, the ESRB the, is a voluntary trade organization that the government has no involvement in. Yep. And one of the reasons these are formed – I mean the MPAA, Motion Picture Association of America – they rate ratings. movies. It's a private organization. It's not part of the government. Yep. I don't think it is. Uh, but but they, they you know they're given screen copies of movies. They rate them. They go back and tell the studios what we're going to rate this movie as. And sometimes the studios will fine tune. Yep. They'll remove certain scenes or have one fewer f bombs yeah. to well, avoid I, the I R know an rating. example in conjunction with it. So I actually, when I was in, in law school, was able to go to an advanced screening of the original Scream, uh, put on by one of the producers. It was not Wes Craven. It was one of the other people who was involved in it. Um, and saw the version of it. And when we saw it, it had no credit sequence because this mm-hmm. credit sequence had not been done yet. And the guy came up and he said, so you know the version that you're going to see, we've been told we'll get an NC-17 rating because of the violence of the initial scenes. Mm-hmm. We are in the process of re-editing those so we'll get an R rating. But he literally told us in the ahead of time, the version you are about to see will be rated considered rated the NC-17. The South Park movie had that same problem. They were going to give it an NC-17, I think. I'm, yeah. I'm going off very old memory now. But I believe they were threatened with an NC-17 rating if they didn't tone it down a little bit. Yeah. And so, you know, that type of thing. So it's you definitely can see sort of different versions of movies and things like that. It's why a lot of times they also say, like, if you buy a DVD, you'll get the director's cut is unrated. Yeah. That's because they never submitted the director's cut to the yeah. MPAA for Which, rating. When they say unrated, that's supposed to make you think, like, there's something in there that's, like, really salacious or whatever. <laughs> it just means that there are scenes that were never submitted to the MPAA and not part of the rated <laughs> yeah. version. That's all and it I think, means. I think you actually have to pay for a rating. I think you do have to s- s- pay mm-hmm. the MPAA to get a rating for the movie, so I think that's why they do yeah. a lot of those unrated. Yeah, all, all the movie stuff, the rating stuff, the ESRB stuff, it's all voluntary industry compliance. So yep. it's it's not the government. Again, this is this is the important thing about free speech. That's not the government stepping in and and telling you yeah. what you have to do. Also, and in fact, they're doing that so the government yeah. will not step in. And I think it's also worth keeping in mind. Arguably, a movie theater could show an R-rated movie and not abide by the age yeah. restrictions, but that would get them in trouble with the MPA and the theaters. And yep. more than likely, what it would be is the studios would then refuse to provide them with movies. Yep, exactly. Um, right. So it, it's one of these things where you look at it and say, you know, technically, it's it's voluntary compliance because everybody's happy with the outcome. Not so much because you're you're obligated to do it or have to do it, and it's important to note that like you know the MPAA has changed over the years too. I mean, there's been differences in the way they did. They had it. to add ratings because because yeah. remember when we were PG thirteen is new. Yeah, there was PG and there was R and there was nothing in between. And I can remember watching, we also had X. I mean, we actually had X as a true rating that you could actually well, see those, those movies. Remember, rated X movies used to just be in the theater with everything else. It yeah. wasn't that big of a deal. And like Roger Ebert would do reviews of of rated X movies. Yeah, we talked like about anything that else. on the show. Yeah. But I remember when I was a kid, a PG-13 movies had nudity in them. And just, you know, yeah. it's the 80s, so it was a different era, and people weren't, you know, as upset about it at the time. But um, I, I can remember going to see movies like that and, and you know, sitting next to my parents. That we saw um, um, uh, Top Secret. Okay. Have you ever seen Top Secret? It's, yep. got, it's a, an old Val Kilmer movie from the 80s. I think it's rated PG. But it has a, a scene with a, a topless woman in it, yeah. which is inconceivable in even a PG-13 movie now. That would be instant rated R. Yeah. PG, children can go. Yeah, well, and actually, if I remember rightly, it's, it's, the original Star Wars was rated G. 
there's there's a G there's G rating movies from like the seventies that we look back at it now and say these would be PG if not PG thirteen movies. Oh yeah. Um, but they were G rated at the time, you know, as to sort of what it is, you know, remember G rated is everybody. Like there's yeah. you know PG movies were still everybody. But the idea behind PG movies is that you should you know parents should make sure their kids are ready for it. Yeah. And you know stuff like that. But like a lot of you know if you go back and like watch a lot of early Disney animated movies, those are unquestionably rated G. A lot of those have very scary scenes in them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yes, they're animated, but I think there was a real sort of idea that you know animation wasn't as scary as real life was. You know, whereas it wasn't obviously taken now as the difference is so different. As like a mature art form at the time, and that's yeah. obviously changed a lot with the influence of anime and a lot of stuff like that. Yeah, and you know the idea that you have these these types of things coming with it. But again, I think it's you know we have those kind of changes occurring. You know, things have changed. I know there is a discussion right now. Is it PG fifteen? If I remember rightly, they're going to change PG thirteen. Hmm. I've not heard about that. And it's uh, there's a there's an idea that basically says we we need to alter the the age group of it. And they're going to create a new one that's like PG fifteen or PG seventeen, something like that. Well, it's interesting comparing the ratings between like the ESRB, like software versus movies. Yeah, because the software ratings were were concocted later, obviously, and so there's less of this built in legacy, um, you know. Uh, trade inertia that's in the, the movie industry, they got to start from scratch and say, what what makes sense? You have rated E for everybody, Everyone. which, you know, is a little more intuitive than G for general yeah. audiences. Um, but I think I think they have, like, there's like a 10 plus and a 14 plus and yep. an adults only the M, rating. M. Yeah. And then I think there's a, there's a level above M, I believe, yeah, too. A-O, adults only. A-O, okay. Yeah. A- M is mature, which means if you're a mature teenager, maybe it's fine. Adults only is I don't care, be 18. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> be and 18 that's, or be nothing. And that's where some of these, you know, and again, like restricted as, for example, R in movies is, you know, 17 and older, basically, period. Unless um, you have a parent with unless you. Unless you have a parent with Whereas you. Whereas NC-17 is, no, you need to be yeah. this age. Yeah, and but again, it's also like the thing is with a parent. You know, it's not with a guardian. It's not necessarily with a, an older sibling. In a lot of cases, it's supposed to be a parent, you know, which is kind of its own weird thing. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's you get into those kind of weird things. Whereas again, NC-17 is no way, period, yep. um, you know, as to whatever it has to be. You kind of look at it and say, is somebody who's really 16 and a half versus yeah. somebody who's 17 in one day really that different when it comes to an you NC-17 also look at how movie. our attitudes have changed about violence. Like, I remember Terminator 2 was rated R. Yeah. They'd make that PG-13 these days. Probably. If, I mean, they'd, they'd change the film if they had to to get it there. But looking at it in retrospect, it's it's a it's a largely bloodless movie. There's a lot of stabbing and whatnot with the, with the, the T-1000. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it, it looks kind of fakey by, by modern standards. <laughs> uh, but, you know, going back and watching that, I was watching it the other day. I mean, I've got a 10-year-old. I mean, other, there's some language in there, but... Other than all of the, the the violence and fighting, which is you know mostly cyborgs and machines, yeah, um, you know, I the, you they would make that PG thirteen today. I, one of I those did, things I think is really interesting is when you look and you see because now they give you the explanation of why it got the categories. Mm-hmm. And one of those I always think is interesting is science fiction violence. You know, it's one of the because that's different from regular violence, right? Yeah. You know, and the idea is like, oh, it's just a robot that looks like a person being killed. Yeah. You know, or it's you know a spaceship shooting another spaceship, even though somebody's piloting it. Um, you know, those kind of things. But there's actually, it, and and you know this, and I've, yeah, I talk about other podcasts. I've started now that I consume a large number of podcasts. Actually, I've really started to like the format. But they talk. Uh, one of the ones that, that I listen to a lot is the Cracked Podcast, and they have an episode in there where they actually talk about movies which are ca- which are overly casual about character deaths. Mm-hmm. And talking about how you have these movies where we have scenes in them that don't really fit the movie. 
but you know the idea is the movie is very anti-violence and it's supposed to be all anti-violence and then there's a scene so, where somebody's just casually <laughs> murdered <laughs> yeah. you know and yet we, we don't really think about this because it's such a common plot point we don't, for the security guard to be killed to get past them I, this is something that, that I think we may have talked about this on the show so Wonder Woman we both like the Wonder Woman movie yeah right? I still haven't seen it but <laughs> uh, you haven't seen it I still haven't seen it oh well I liked it <laughs> um, but one of the things that bothered me about it spoiler alert you know the Wonder Woman character is compassionate she cares deeply about mankind uh, you know her 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 uh, her enemy is Ares, the god of war. So they're trying to defeat him and bring peace. It takes place in World War One, which is a horrible conflict. And so there's all this about uh, peace and love and getting along and whatnot. All good stuff. Yep. Um, and and part of the plot is that is that men are not inherently violent. It is Ares that is corrupting the hearts of these people and driving them to war. And if Ares is defeated, the Germans will lay down their weapons and stop fighting. So there's an undertone of that to you know the the um, the uh, what was it in the World War One? Not not the the Axis. The uh, um, um, uh, central yeah, central cent- powers. Central powers. Central powers. Yeah, yeah. The central powers are not evil. Uh, they are just corrupted by this 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 evil god. Um, so you know that in turn leads to the conclusion that the, you know the rank and file German soldiers that are manning these these battle stations and, and doing this fighting aren't bad people. They're just fighting for their country like the Americans are, and, and their hearts have been corrupted. Yet Wonder Woman casually mows through dozens of people <laughs> yeah. and murders them in cold blood and doesn't seem to feel any remorse for it. And even watching the movie, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Wouldn't she be, like, going out of her way not to kill them, like to engage them in some sort of nonviolent way or yeah. at least nonlethal way of subduing them because they're, they're you know, in her, in her worldview, they're innocent. But that's one of those things in the screenwriting where I'm like, no, it's a comic book movie. So we have to have the action scene with the whoa way that people die and, and like, like they they crush tanks and like uh, she, she crushes this this uh, church bell tower that the sniper is in and then it collapses and this guy you know dies horribly in the rubble. They don't show any of that because yeah. it's PG thirteen, but that's what happens. And you're right, it's it's very casual about all of this 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 sort of cartoonish violence that uh, you know that by itself is one thing, but it it's it's it starkly contrasts with the theme and the tone of the movie. Yeah, and and again, I think that that's you know when we get talking about the movie range, talking about sort of things in movies, like so much of this changed. Like we're we're so used to things happening. Um, you know, it's just sort of what it is. And and it is one of those, I think, ongoing issues with a lot of action movies is you have essentially the the chaff that, you know, the, yeah. the, the superhero character, whoever it is, has to get through. Yeah, to get you there. gotta have the cannon fodder. Yeah, you gotta have the cannon fodder. And it's 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 necessary in some respects to set up who the character is, but we then bump into the fact that sometimes these incredibly heroic characters that are supposed to be sort of moral idealists are moral idealists except when the plot doesn't let them. Well, and, you know? and we, we get around that in a, in a writing sense now by having the cannon fodder be people who, by modern standards, are objectively worthless. Like, th- things we can dehumanize and not yes. feel bad about. We're very like, popular with Nazi zombies, yeah. yes. Nazis, zombies, and aliens. Yeah. You know, <laughs> zombies and aliens aren't people, so it's easier to make them just irredeemably evil and not have to explain the, the, the moral they're Independence issues. Day. Yeah, Independence <laughs> Day. You know, they're coming to conquer us and they're evil, so, you know, and we're going to treat them like locusts. And then Nazis. Yeah, uh, and you know, and so, and every every movie ha- has this has the, the 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 dehumanized other that you can mercilessly mow through without without any sort of remorse, and the audience doesn't stop and say, "Wait a minute." <laughs> yeah, but there's definitely ones where it's even when they do that. There's also ones where you see like that that gets re- reused, and they're not that easily thrown out. But it's that we're just so used to it, we sort of yep. get used to it. And and again, I think that's a, it's an interesting thing to sort of get into that you know. 
you've got these kind of things when we talk about ratings, we talk about the idea of this being voluntary, we talk about the idea of, you know, what does this kind of stuff really mean? These things do change, and we have, you know, opinions as to what they are that's changed. And again, if you go back and you look at movies and, like, what was allowed in movies, and again, if you haven't done this, like, go back and get the Universal Monster movies. Like, go back and watch the original, like, Frankenstein's Wolfman, mm-hmm. which, by the way, if you haven't, and I'll just tell you, I'm a bit of a movie buff as to what it is, they are brilliant movies. I mean, especially for their time period. Watch them today. They're not scary. No. And they're not scary because the special effects just didn't exist at that point in time to do what they wanted to do with them. They're still creepy in many respects. They Mm -hmm. can still definitely get you with suspense. But I wouldn't say that they're scary in the way that we consider scary movies today. Um, But it's one of those things where, like, you look at what the ratings of those movies would be today versus what the ratings of those movies were back then. It's a wholly different world. And that's very important to recognize. Again, we're talking about a lot of these First Amendment issues. This is not something that stays static. This is something which yeah, does It's a change. moving target. Yeah, it's a moving target. And as a moving target, we get different opinions. And some of those opinions are just simply what is sort of the values of society right now. So let's talk about some uh, – we had strategy guides in here. I think we'll save that because there's a patent issue that Kirk and I were talking about on the way over that I yep. think is fascinating. Even though we keep saying we're going to talk about strategy guides. We will. Sorry, Wes. <laughs> this was brought to us by Wes. Well, let's, let's hit it real quick. So okay. Wes just wanted to know, you know, there's official and unofficial strategy guides. And, you know, and at, at some point, he, you know, some, some of the unofficial ones became official, but he also pointed out, like, you ever notice that, like, old video game strategy guides from the 80s, the maps weren't always accurate, uh, the descriptions of, like, the, the like the game text and what you would see, the screen, there was no screenshots, the, they were kind of hard to use, and I don't know this, but I speculated to Wes when we were talking that it's because the unofficial people were trying studiously to avoid infringing copyrights and to faithfully reproduce the map from yep. the game without any errors. Like, the Metal Gear uh, map strategy guide was famously terrible, yeah. to the point where it was almost unusable. Now, some of it may also be because they're having to do it by playing through it, which is yeah. obviously one of the things where you well, don't they're necessarily they're playing through unfinished it. demos when yeah. they make them. Like, you'll see that in movie trailers, too, sometimes, where you see scenes in the trailer, and then yeah. they Either they use a different take in the movie or the scene's just not there <laughs> at all. I'll pick on Independence Day, actually, because that's the best one, where the three different trailers showing the White House exploding, yeah, all of which have one, you know, two of which have the helicopter, one doesn't, one has the house, White House explode differently, if I remember yeah. rightly, and it's it, it, the whole thing with it, because of literally what they had put into the scene at the point in time they made the trailer. Yeah, so I'm, I'm speculating that the license stuff probably was more faithful because they had the rights to use the, the copyrights. Yeah. They to also the, had to the access art. to the actual code yeah. and know exactly the way yeah. the map was built. And uh, stuff the, like that. the unlicensed stuff may have been either deliberately or inadvertently made inaccurate um, for those reasons. But you know, even then, there's limits to what you can do uh, uh, you know, with, with or without a license. And one of the, the classic examples is there was uh, an unofficial Star Wars toy catalog published in, I want to say, the late 90s or early 2000s. Yeah. They used no art from any of the Star Wars movies or stills or posters, just photographs of the toys themselves. Yep. Um, and you know, the first thing I'm, I'm thinking is, well, wait a minute. The, the toys are sculptures. They're copyrighted. They're, they're likenesses of, of characters and whatnot. And it's an unofficial catalog. So how do they get away with that? Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting situation because who owns the copyright to the photographs of the toys? Yeah, it's the author of the book that's taking the pictures, yeah. right? He's selecting how he's going to arrange the toys. He was also careful not to arrange them in a way that mirrors scenes in the movie and things like that. Which I remember reading through it and thinking it's odd that they wouldn't recreate any scenes. But now that I'm an IP lawyer, I think I see why. Yeah. Um, but it raises a question, Kirk. You and I have talked about if I take a photograph of something else that's copyrighted, 
does the underlying copyright to the thing I'm photographing affect how I can use my photograph? And, and the answer is somewhat yes. I mean, we've had those kind of issues arise before, which is the idea that, you know, hey, the, you can have the underlying copyright affect it, you know, so whatever it might be. Now, for the most part, it's considered separate. There is a lot of sort of exception to the idea of t- taking a photograph, redrawing something like that is, is sort yeah. of almost accepted fair use and transformative fair use is a lot of times where that comes in. But yes, there is a possibility with there. I think the toy guides become pretty clear where it's, hey, if I'm just photographing a toy, yep. you've almost got a newsworthiness exception there at that point in time. I mean, that's the thing where you start saying, hey, fair use, it's newsworthy because I need to point out this is what the condition of this toy looks like in perfect condition versus in, you know, to use the comic book, I'd C8 condition, you know, something like that. Those are the things where I think you you really get into, like, th- it, fair use seems to act very strongly for the fact this doesn't harm it. Now, and transformative. Enough, you know, the toy sculptures were sold yep. for the purpose of entertaining children. This is a book for adults to reminisce. Yep. And the other thing I think you bump into with it, and I think it's worth keeping in mind, is that it isn't necessarily free, and it's it's British law, admittedly, but the Harry Potter encyclopedia yeah. was found to be a copyright infringement um, because of the fact that it used too much of the books, because it used a lot of quotes and sort yep. of things like that. So it's one of those where there's are, there are big questions here. Quite frankly, I think a lot of the things as well with the strategy guides, and I think it's sort of worth noting in conjunction with the strategy guides. In some sense, I think strategy guides went by the wayside because of God mode. We basically allowed the idea that said, hey, you can play through the game without needing to know how to beat it. Well, in the internet, like just anymore, if you get stuck, yeah. someone somewhere will tell you exactly how to get past well, and, something. And, and the reality is a lot of video games now, like you can't play without doing it. I mean, I joke about it, and it's one of the ones I said. How do you learn to play Minecraft without watching a YouTube video on how to survive the first night? Yeah, I sent you that one when we first started playing. Yeah, when we I'm first like, started like, playing. Yeah, just watch this guy play for five minutes. It'll make sense. Yeah, and that kind of thing. And it's like, oh, okay, this way. But you look at that and you go, that's because there's no manual. There is no manual, basically, for Minecraft. Well, if you try to explain Minecraft to somebody, so when my oldest son, Spencer, started playing it, I remember he was explaining it to me and saying, you got to play this game. I'm like, this sounds just like World of Warcraft. He's like, no, no, it's nothing like World of Warcraft. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Well, like, you know, you, you get, like, weapons and, and monsters. I'm like, that sounds like World of Warcraft. No, 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 it's different. And then, and then when you kill the monsters, you can get levels and you can enchant things. I'm like, still World of Warcraft. He goes, no, you, like, make stuff. I'm like, crafting, World of Warcraft. And he's like, just play the game. Like, <laughs> and then he turned out, it has nothing to do with yeah, World of no, Warcraft. No, he was right and I was wrong. So, yeah. Spencer, if you're listening, you were right. But I think that that's the, the thing that you get into in conjunction with this is it's, you know, we had these strategy guides. And I think a lot of it was that the whole point of the game was to be a puzzle to be solved. That was the way a lot of video games started off with either endless levels mm-hmm. or sort of these levels. And one of the ones like I pick on with the idea of endless levels, I remember this. So I had Tron Deadly Discs, which was an old television game for you guys to remember that. Um, based upon the Tron movie loosely. Um, but one of the things with it is you had to fight these other guys. It was the, essentially the Frisbee combat that you yep. see in True. Um, or in, in True in Tron. <laughs> um, and it's one of those things where, you know, you do it. Well, there's different levels of people. If you ever got to, like, once you got to, like, 25,000 points, you got purple guys that took two hits. When you got to 50,000 points, you got the, the the guys that took four hits, you know, stuff like that. One of the things that was always interesting about it is there were orange guardians, which were basically, like, they could block your shots. Mm-hmm. You had to get to 100,000 points in order to encounter the orange guardians. I played that game for thousands of hours, and I never saw a guardian. I don't even know if they exist in the game or not. <laughs> I, you know, because I could never get to a, you know hundred thousand points. I came close a couple of times, and I never made it to hundred thousand points. It's one of those things where, like, you know, you look at it and say that was an open-ended game. The idea is that you could never finish it. Games well, like, how most games were at the time. Yeah. And, and you measured your progress by your score. Yeah. Whereas there's also definitely the games that sort of had the end point. They only went so far. You know, hey, it was a puzzle to be solved. I think a lot of the things with strategy guides were the puzzle to be solved games. And the mm-hmm. idea of saying, when you think about it as a games developer, you kind of look at it and say, hey, it's something that tells you how to solve the puzzle defeats the point of the puzzle. It's sort of like buying the jigsaw puzzle already assembled. Isn't that yeah. not what you want? Well, but for games, so for like the Sierra Online games, like yep. the King's Quest and those kind of games, 
Those I've were puzzle games that were sort of a narrative puzzle. And the problem was, if you got badly stuck enough, uh, you could get to a situation where first you had to restart the game because you didn't save the game properly. Then yeah. uh, you know, then you could get yourself into a situation where you had to start over. But also, those games at some point, if you got too stuck, just became unbearably frustrating. Yeah, there were also places where you could truly get stuck. One of those I remember, I played King's Quest One, I believe it is, where you get swallowed by the whale, you have to the feather and get swallowed by the whale. Is it four? That's four where you play Rosella. Yeah, yeah you play Rosella, you get swallowed by the whale. I remember that. One of the issues I had is that I had the I had the feather. You had to have the feather first before yeah. you go in. Well, yeah. and I knew the feather, and I knew I had to go swim around and get swallowed by the whale. And I could never find the dang whale. I had gone through strategy guides, and they said, just swim around, and eventually it'll find you. But the there was a shark, was, too, that sometimes got you. So yeah. you had to save the game and hope the shark didn't yeah. get you. Well, the reason that I couldn't get there is because you can't trigger the whale until you've gone to the princess's castle, which I'd never gone to. That's right. Because I thought that that was supposed to be someplace I went to later. And yep. so you can get these situations where you had that. And there was also, there was an area in the game as well, I can't remember what it was, I did something, I think it was in King's Quest 1 as to whatever it was, where you can actually complete like Quest B before you complete Quest A. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is once you complete Quest B, you can't trigger Quest A. Yep. And so if you hadn't gone to the place to trigger Quest A and you completed B thinking that was what you're supposed to do, you literally could not finish the game because it was impossible to trigger A. Um, and so, you know, those were, I think, where those why some of those strategy guides came out. Um, and admittedly, I'd, I'd, I'd sell you, I mean, I loved Sierra games when I was a kid. I, oh, yeah. I absolutely loved Sierra games. I owned all the King's Quests. I owned all the Police Quests. I owned Heroes all the Space Quests. Space Quest. Um, the other one I really liked was Manhunter, which I always thought was a game that they could have done so much more with. It was a sort of they tried to put some arcade elements into those mm-hmm. kind of games, and it was such a good game. But it was one of those that they kind of never really ran. Did you with. play Codename Iceman? The, the I remember that? One? Yep. Yeah, that was a fun one. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so those those kind of things. So again, I think when we talk about the idea of strategy guides, what it is. What we really got into, I think, is a lot of times these strategy guides were things that sprang up because people wanted them, and I'm not sure that the games developers originally realized they were something people were going to want. Once they realized they were something people were going to want, they wanted to create official ones, and so you then ended up in the potential copyright dispute of which one's official versus unofficial. Now I think there's a recognition of, like, we don't need to put strategy guides out. People are going to do them. I mean, get on YouTube for any video game. I mean, get on YouTube for Fortnite and how many hundreds of thousands of hours, if not more, of stuff on Fortnite. I think is there. also the way I mean games change now because it used to be that you bought the game and maybe at most there might be a patch at some point that you could order and have sent to you on a floppy disk. Yeah, you know to fix a crucial bug. But but up until you know maybe 10, 15 years ago, most games weren't patched that yeah. often, and they were very static. Once you yeah. had it, it didn't change. But we we live in a world now where games are launched in in what could be described as a semi beta state still, and and they are beta tested, public data beta. Testing sometimes, uh, and you know, and and they're and they're patched continuously, updated and tweaked and modified, and it's just it's playing yeah. a game is such a different experience. And certain now. games are continuously intended to be upgraded. Yeah. I mean, I've talked about it in the forums. I really like World of Tanks Blitz. That game changes every week. Yeah. Because they introduce new tanks, because they introduce new maps, because they introduce sort of, you know, new modes of play. Um, they, they alter the tech trees, you know, which yep. can be frustrating at times. But it's the kind of things where it's, you know, like that game is not static. The game that I play now is very different than the game I played three years ago when I started playing that so game. So is a printed strategy guide even worth that much? Yeah. I mean, it's out of date within six months. Yeah, I mean, here's the strategy guide of how best to go through the tech tree, which doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, you know? Hayden, my son Hayden's got a bunch of uh, Minecraft books. There's always unofficial and official, I think, Minecraft uh, strategy books. 
a lot of its ideas on how to build certain things, but you know, some of it is is the redstone devices, which if you haven't played Minecraft, is basically a way to do electric circuits in yep. Minecraft. But you know, the, the the redstone component behavior is tweaked a little bit from from uh, uh, you know from from point release to point release. They add new things to it, some of which I still don't know how to use. I don't know what a comparator is at this point. Yep. So he's got these strategy guides that say, here's how you build a redstone clock. Well, there's easier and better ways to do it now. And some of those little ways don't even work anymore. So, yeah. like, it's funny. When, I, when I'm trying to figure out how to do something in Minecraft or any game, I have to add the year to my search criteria. Like, <laughs> how do I do this, 2019? Or, yeah, or I'll never find current information. <laughs> and that's really interesting, actually. I think that's a, it's a good thing to talk about in, in strategy guides is we've almost gone past the window of strategy guides being needed. And so we kind of look at this and say, this is an old question, you know, as to sort of what it is. Where we see it now now is more compilation type thing. So again, yep. like Harry Potter encyclopedias. Um, I know there's a Game of Thrones encyclopedia apparently out there. You know, but there's also like the ongoing wikis, which are continuously changing. You know, in yeah, conjunction and, with these and things they and document these worlds so well that the authors, you know, then have to go back and ask the people who maintain yeah. them because they can't keep track of everything. In fact, I'm just listening to uh, the Cracked podcast. Yeah. Actually, they're talking about uh, Martin having to go back and ask fans who certain characters yeah. were because he forgot. I've actually talked to multiple authors that have been involved in big series, uh, big like book series. You know, like 30, 40 book long yeah. series that say the fans are incredibly helpful because it's yeah. the kind of thing where they can post up and they can say wait a minute what was this color what color were this character's eyes again because they, yeah. it matters to them they don't just want to dig through their stuff they know they mentioned it but they don't want to dig through their stuff to remember what it is and the fans will say oh they're blue because yeah. I just read that section I think that's the kind of thing that there was a time period where you would have relied on your editor to do for you but your editor doesn't have time now either but you they also, got 40 other books they're working on we also didn't make media that way. I mean, yeah. you know, we kind of talk about Game of Thrones being the perfect example. We have seven seasons, which are one storyline. Yeah. When Babylon 5 did one storyline for one season with an interconnection somewhat to the other seasons, that was revolutionary. Yeah. You know, that was in the late 90s. Like, yeah. that's not that long ago, you know, it's what it is. And now the everything idea- used to be syndicated because you never knew when anything was going to yeah. be going to come out. Like, like Star Trek The Next Generation, you didn't want to ever mention too much of what happened in prior episodes because you had no idea what the broadcast order would be for any particular part of your audience because yeah. you'd be in syndication. And so you didn't want to mention something that maybe they hadn't seen yet and they wouldn't know what you're talking about. Also, people just didn't tune in every week yeah. to a show quite the same way. And so the concept of, you know, hey, we need a strategy, that, you know, we need something that explains the Star Trek universe. Why would you be? you'd never encounter yeah. those aliens again. You'd Every episode was self-contained. You could just sit down, watch it, not yeah. have ever seen it before, and follow it along well And enough. that's, I think, a good example of sort of this thing with changing. We talked a little about strange changing. Is Strategy guides have already gone by the wayside for video games because we no longer need them. You know, they're by the side. But you're starting to see more of these encyclopedias, compil- yeah. compilations. You know, how many TV shows now have completely standalone episodes? Sitcoms, I think, still basically do. Mostly, yeah. But um, even then, there's like an overarching narrative to all these yeah. things. Network TV still does a lot of that because of the broadcast format. But, you know, the, the hot thing now is binge-watching. My, yep. my, uh, my wife and I are watching True Detective. We just watched episode six of season three last night. Um, very compelling stuff. But, like, you're going to sit down yep. and watch it all whenever you're going to watch it. And, you know, that one's released on a schedule because it's yep. HBO, I think. So that one you still kind of, you know, you know everybody's going to watch it between Sunday night-ish and Monday yep. if they're going to watch it. Or they're going to binge-watch it in two years, yep. at which point they already know what happened. <laughs> Speaking of which, I mean, do we want to do our little sort of, you know, close-up of things we've seen here and, uh, and talk yeah. Yeah, I actually don't have much. Um, so we had a whole patent thing we're going to talk about. We got to page, let's see, we got to page, we got halfway through page two of our outline today. Yeah, so six-page outline. Third Not only we did wax poetic a little bit at the beginning about this is some of the sort of, you know, base of podcasts and stuff like that, yeah. which hopefully you guys didn't find boring. I uh, So I saw, I finally saw Annihilation. Um, uh, 
Very good. I liked it very much. You and I were talking this morning uh, at the coffee machine, though. Neither one of us really loved the ending. Yeah, I think both. I, I did not like the ending. I loved the concept of the movie. I lo- I, mean, I love the setting, the set, the set dressing, yep. and the sort of you know. And again, I'm a technical guy. Whoever did the scenic design for that movie should have won an Oscar. Like that, yeah. it's incredibly well done scenic design that gets no credit. It had a, a, a Geiger esque kind of unsettling um, element to it. Yeah. That, but it wasn't. Um, Geiger is very dirty and uh, um, the, uh, primitive. Said it's it's the it's the dirty future, which is sort of yeah. cl- always classified as Blade Runner. That's the everything's the very ribbed and and angular and, yeah. and very artificial and looks like it's underground all the time. Yeah. Whereas actually, this is very beautiful in yeah. the way it's done. It's just beautiful in a very very strange it way. It anthropomorphizes a bunch of things that should not be anthropomorphized, and when you look at it, you're like, ugh. It's it's kind of horrifying, but yeah. it's also horrifyingly it's horrifying in a beautiful way. I mean, these things are pretty colored. They're flowers. You know, yeah. stuff like that, but yet it's horrifying. Yeah. So, yeah, I so, saw that. Um, just mentioned True Detective. If you've ever seen – if you watch those True Detectives? I haven't watched True Detectives, now. Nah. Um, so there's been three seasons, and it's an anthology. So each season is sort of independent. The first season had uh, Woody Harrelson and uh, – shoot, I forget who else was in it. Uh, Matthew McConaughey. Okay. One of the best series of TV I've ever seen. It was they're they're all um, they're sort of procedural crime dramas, but um, they're all sort of told in a very interesting, creative way. Uh, the current season has three different timelines going on: one from an investigation of a murder slash abduction in 1980, one when that case was reopened in the 1990s, and one that's but more recent. And the same characters are in each time frame, and you jump from each to each. Yep. And so each each week you get more information about what they did or did not solve in the prior investigations. And so you also know that, you know, as of as of the current time, the, the main character still hasn't solved the crime because he's still investigating it. So yep. it's really, really well done. Uh, um, it's got, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, shoot. Uh, Marshala Ali. Um, he was in uh, House of Cards, uh, excellent actor. And uh, the other character's like, can't remember who plays them, but if if you like if you like that kind of stuff at all, it's not heavy on the legal. It's very much more procedural police drama, yeah. investigation, that kind of thing. Really well done. Um, highly recommend it. Very cool. Yeah, we've had I've had a few interesting ones. I finally finished Final Fantasy VII. I think it was, which is an extremely good movie with a quite frankly, in my opinion, horrible ending. Um, was, was that the final the movie? Uh, the, yeah, it's the Spirits Within movie. Spirits Within. Okay. Um, yeah. Which I liked the concept of it. I think it went very well. I think the ending of it just completely fell apart. Quite frankly, it's a bit too Japanese anime at the end. Um, you know, to sort of say that, I think a lot of Japanese anime in its conclusion goes to very specific things, and it's it, it's a cultural thing. I think as an American, that I don't appreciate that as an. Is that ending. the one where like the asteroid hit and yeah. like, there's all these ghosts? Am- yeah. yeah, and there's ghosts and stuff like that. And again, quite frankly, I think it explains too much. I mean, that was the sort yeah. of thing I had with it. Um, it also goes a bit too metaphysical. I like the concept of it, but I think it went a bit too far in that realm at the end. But it's it's a beautiful movie in the way it's animated, and it's a it's it's a generally good story. I actually like the yeah. story. I think it's well played and and well done. Um, a couple of the other ones I've sort of seen, I just started watching The Man in the High Castle. Well, um, I watched the first two episodes of that, found it very compelling. My yeah. wife uh, has forgotten that we even watched it, so. <laughs> I am about two minutes before the episode end of episode two, and it's sort of like, these are really good, but I also really like dystopian universes. Yeah, I think they're interesting. Um, and that's a very well done dystopian universe. I really like the way it's interplaying and the way they're interplaying, like, 
you can see like current things, but the mm-hmm. idea of like this sort of dramatic change, but yet not dramatic change, stuff like that. That's based and on a novel, isn't it? Um, I believe so. Yeah. It's yeah, it's what it is. But it's the the other thing I really like about it is that it's very much leaving you guessing. Is like where the heck is this going? Which is also I think a good thing with it. The other one I saw and one I definitely wanted to mention on this show is my wife actually decided she really wanted to see it and took me with her. Is we went to go see On the Basis of Sex. Oh yeah, how was that? Um, which I'll kind of add it. I generally do not like movies. A sort of that are docudramas, mm-hmm. particularly about lawyers, because I find that a lot of times they make them out to be overly heroic. Well, I don't like, um, I generally don't like them about living figures or people who recently died because I find that depending on whether the filmmaker either loved or hated the person, yep. heavily influences, you know, Now, and I'll also portrayed. premise this is one of the things we also saw over Just the... Just say who it's about, yeah. right? It's, on the, it's, it's, it's about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, yeah. um, and sort of, it's, one of the things that's nice about it is it has nothing to do with her basically getting on the Supreme Court. Yeah. It's an early case in her career that sort of is involved with, and it has to do with the the assertions of sexual discrimination and yep. whether or not that is a cause of action. That's and what that the it title was not means. a cause of action. Yeah, and it's yeah. based on the final line of the brief, which I don't know if it's true or not. I was going to look it up, but I didn't, which is you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex, and yep. that's what it comes from. Um, the, the thing that I think is very interesting about the movie is it focuses very narrowly on sort of this component of it and where it comes from and sort of where it goes. It focuses a lot on law. And, you know, there's a lot of scenes that there's a kind of cool scene having to do with how the government uses early computers to figure out how to write its brief because mm-hmm. it needs to do all this research <laughs> that can't otherwise be done. But the, the thing that I really liked that I thought was very compelling about it is, one, it's just a very compelling story. And, again, I don't know how much of this is docudrama versus truth. Obviously, at least some of it is true. I mean, you know, the, the basis of it, the fact yeah. of her, you the, know. The core events are, are generally all true, you know. Yep. Um, but what I did like about it is while I think it's it's got a lot of sort of modern sentiment in it, I think it tries to be a little more factual and sort of mm-hmm. point out the fact that, you know, this law changed in you know from what it was, that, you know, basically, you know, sexual discrimination had been freely allowed yeah. up until this point in time, until sort of these cases started to come at it. These cases did not have facts that are what we think of today as sexual discrimination. But they were sort of the initial dominoes that started bringing down the the, the house of cards. And the the thing that I really liked about the way it's portrayed is that it's that they don't shy away from that. Now, I do think they actually shy away a little bit from the facts of her case. <laughs> the, the key about it is, is that she represents a, a male defendant in conjunction with the uh, classic law school legal strategy you know that represents somebody that that your jury is going to be predisposed to agree with and and stuff like that saying that he's sexually discriminated against I believe it was more and and again the the, well actually people can jump on me in conjunction with this but from I remember in law school a lot of the assertion was actually the fact that he was unmarried versus married um, was actually one of the big issues not so much of his gender but his marital status was actually a big issue of it it's also a class under the 14th amendment yes but you know it's, it's that kind of thing with it but it's as, again, from somebody coming from not generally liking that style of movie, I actually thought that one was very well done. Yeah. Um, and it was one of those that I, I really enjoyed it. It was a compelling story and stuff like that. So that's one I would actually recommend. I also saw, I don't think I mentioned on the show, but I did see Vice, um, which I saw over the sort of winter break um, when we did it. Who's, what's that one about? So it, it's the, it's it's considered to be a dark comedy. It's really sort of a docudrama about Vice President Dick Cheney. Um I actually really did not like that movie. I thought it had points of extreme brilliance um, that they just did a great job of. I thought it was a little too blunt in its um, 
clear political affi- <laughs> no, it, it's it's clear political affiliation and what it wanted to say. That was the yeah. complaint I sort of had with it. They they were just a little too blunt at times. But it's one of those where again, it's comparing like that to on the basis of sex. I would see on the basis of sex and recommend that substantially over Vice. I think it was a much better made movie. Um, Vice is one that I think if you agree politically with the fact that Vice, you know, that Vice, you know, that uh, Dick Cheney was an evil person, you will love. Yeah. If it's something where you look at it and sort of say, hey, this is a little potentially a little more nuanced, I think you might have a little more question with it. Although it does have some just utterly brilliant scenes in it. <laughs> there, there are some things in it which is so well done um, in the way they portray things that's just it's, – it's dark humor. It's really well done. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, I thought they were few and far between. You know, it's it's interesting. I can I can watch movies that that come from a political or social or whatever viewpoint that I fundamentally disagree with. If it's a well made movie, I don't care. I, I just yeah. enjoy it anyway. Where where I get hung up is where the movie is trying to hold itself out as having some authenticity when it clearly doesn't, or when it's it's just so unfairly one sided to the point of intellectual dishonesty that 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 distracts yeah. from from just enjoying the art. The form. way the way I sum up Vice and sort of I think it's the best example that I got from it is the very first scene in it is they pop up some text and basically say, we've tried to be as accurate in this as we can, but keep in mind that we know very little about it because he's the most secretive vice president ever. And then basically presents two hours <laughs> so of unvarnished truth <laughs> that nobody could possibly know unless you are Dick Cheney. And so it, it was that kind of thing where it was like, oh, we're making a movie that we recognize may not be truthful, but then we're going to present it as utterly true, even though there's no way we could actually know what's inside his head, which is 90% of what we're talking about. I think you're better off just not even saying that. Yeah. You and, know? And just, don't, just don't say it. Just, just make a movie about Dick Cheney. Don't, don't try and pretend yeah. that it's anything other than, than speculation or, yep. or, or maybe wishful thinking. You know? But again, I think that was the thing that, that really got me with it is what to me felt with the like, hey, you're presenting this as being too bluntly obvious and it's really not. So let's get away from that. So that's all I've got. Oh, one more. Have you seen I think we talked about this before. Have you seen Counterparts? No. Or not count, or counterpart. So real quickly, it's it's because it's coming out again soon, uh, the next season, I think. Uh, it's got um, um, uh, J J.K. Simmons, who played um, the the newspaper guy in the original uh, Spider-Man movie. If you, you, you know him, if you saw him, he's yep. the guy that's in the farmers commercials. Uh, so he's the main character in this, and uh, the story behind it is that at some point during some science experiment in, I think, the 70s or 80s, um, a parallel universe emerged, and you can cross between that universe and our universe in some building in Berlin. And so they have these agencies that manage this relationship because the universes were identical until that point, then they split. So things like where there are oil deposits are the same in both universes, but in universe one, you know, they find it in universe two, they don't, and they're very careful about selling this information back and forth. So our universe is the one we live in. In the parallel universe, some kind of disease hit and wiped out tons of people, and there was this massive uh, plague epidemic, so they're really paranoid about ordinary flus and illnesses and washing your hands and things like that. Technologically, they're way behind us. They don't have iPhones and things like that. Um, and the story is about some basically spying back and forth between these universes and um, and everybody has a counterpart in the other universe. Some of them are dead. Some of them are not. They plant them back and forth. It is a fascinating concept. Yeah. Uh, and it's 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 not as well written as I'd like. Um, I, I don't really love the direction they're going with any of the characters so far. I mean, they're interesting, but uh, the setting by itself has been enough to, to carry it forward. So if, if you're interested in any kind of just – it reminds you of the first season of Lost, which if you've seen that, is one of the best first seasons of any episode where you're just like, what the heck is going on? I'm so curious. It's like that with somewhat less compelling characters, although Simmons is is great. Okay. Cool. Uh, we are we are running very long, so we'll, we'll – uh, I'm not sure what we're going to do next time. We may do a third video game thing to talk about the patents and trademarks. We may move on to music. We'll, yep. we'll decide. We'll but, decide. Um, so we'll do that then. Okay. So there's the music. It's time to go. 
If you have questions, comments, topic ideas, criticisms, complaints, remarks, adulations, or rants, you can send your thoughts to us on Twitter at LGGpod or email us at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. You can talk to us on our Facebook page, search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, and find us there. Subscribe to this podcast on one or more of the platforms or all of the platforms. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and the other places where you get your podcast content. If you like what you hear, please give us a review. That's how people find us. That's how we grow the brand. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders and Kirk is at KirkDMN. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri.